This message comes from NPR sponsor FX, presenting Clipped, the story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Twenty twenty four is a historic year for global elections. According to the Economist's calculations, citizens in seventy six countries are heading to the polls. That's more than half of the world's population, and more people voting than in any previous year. That of course includes the United States in November. We're going to crush crooked Joe Biden next November and we're going to make America great again. Mexico in June. Vamos a ganar. We are going to win in 2024. There is going to be a female president of the republic. And Pakistan scheduled for early next month. According to conservative estimates, my party, PTI, has the support of 75% of the people of Pakistan. But we are being kept out of the electoral process. That was Pakistan's former Prime Minister Imran Khan using AI technology to campaign from prison. He says he's facing criminal charges to prevent his ability to participate in the general election. Not every election will be free and fair. Legislative elections are not likely to change policy in Belarus. Russia's authoritarian regime will likely not come to an end. But votes will matter, especially in places like Taiwan, where the presidential election could set the tone for relations with China. 2024 will quite possibly be the biggest test for the state of democracy in the world today. That's as some 2 billion people head to the polls. After the break, we talk about what's at stake and highlight some of the biggest contests. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Stay with us. We've got a lot to get into. This message comes from NPR sponsor FX, presenting Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. On this week's Wild Card, we talk with Issa Rae about those moments where our lives could have gone another direction. Definitely wasn't supposed to be with that guy at all. At all. But I still think about it. I'm Rachel Martin. Issa Rae tells us how to make peace with the path not taken. That's on the Wild Card podcast from NPR, the game where cards control the conversation. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. Let's get into the conversation. Joining us now is Enda Curran, global economy news reporter at Bloomberg News. Enda, welcome to the program. And Jen, thank you so much for having me on. So let's get into the landscape of elections happening this year. Put into perspective the scale of elections being held in 2024. So the elections this year will impact public policy around the world 
for years to come and it will impact every corner of the globe. Jen, you mentioned some of the stats. It's over 40% of the world's population heading to the polls this year. It's over 40% of the size of the world's economy. Uh, You're looking at issues like national security, immigration, trade, climate, all up all up on, on the slate in terms of how it will be shaped by governments over the coming years. And, of course, the backdrop heading into these polls uh, is that we have two wars underway. We are coming out of the post-pandemic era with all of the disruption that wrought. We have global supply chains and trade routes being re-engineered. We have, uh, we have uh, immigration around the world as people flee desperate situations, but, of course, they're getting much cooler receptions now. So there is a lot at stake. And... The kind of hopeful take is that democracies can can bring public opinion together, can form consensus, and can navigate these issues, and of course, uh, uh, you know, uh, drive through global coordination to tackle some of these issues, especially climate change, for example. But of course, the the, the more worrying take is that nationalism is on the rise. It's threatening liberalism and the former democracy as we know it. And as such, we're going to have countries, um, you know, taking a more isolationist stance, pulling onto themselves. And of course, that's leading to more division and fraction on some of these key issues that are dogging the world right now. So it's a critical year in terms of both the number of elections at play and who they return and what kind of policy they execute after that. What are some of the standout elections for you this year, the ones you're you're paying particular attention to? Yeah, well, I mean, the obvious ones we have to say to begin with, obviously the US is so important. I'm sure we'll talk about that more, but it's critical in terms of how that goes, whether the current president wins re-election or is what looks like the main rival, Donald Trump, comes back. Uh, and, of course, Taiwan is obviously critical. I know you will have a Taiwan expert maybe coming on later. Uh, but Taiwan and how that goes and how China reacts is so important. So that's that's critical. Uh, and then, of course, if you, if you move out across the spectrum, India will be very interesting because India is a, we know it's an emerging superpower, but it's growing its global importance now as a kind of, at the center of geoeconomic gravity. It's very important as a source of foreign investment. It's setting itself up as an alternative to China. And of course, on the ground, there's a lot of concern about p- political suppression there, but that's going to be a very important um, the, the election. And, and then beyond that, there are several others around the world that are very important in the context of the race for global minerals, global resources. Uh, Mexico may return its first female leader. That would be one to watch. South Africa, uh, you may see the ANC come under pressure there, may even lose office for the first time since the 90s, which will be important. And Indonesia is also an interesting one to watch. We're in a time globally where there's concern about the economy, especially in a, in a post-COVID environment. Is there a particular election you're watching that you think could have an outsized impact on the global economy? I think you have to talk. It's Again, this comes back to the U.S. and Taiwan. Let me just quickly say in Taiwan... Um, depending how the Taiwan election goes and depending how China responds to that, you know, if they were to respond, we'll say, with by more um, sort of um, military aggression towards Taiwan or um, restricting the flow of trade or making it more difficult to navigate the waters around Taiwan, obviously that would start to have an impact on global trade, global sentiment, global investment sentiment. So that would be a potential, that would have potential negative spillovers for the world economy. But again, as I say, a, your Taiwan expert can speak to that. But the U.S., is, I think, will be critical. If, for example, um, former President Donald Trump gets re-elected, he will obviously, on the one hand, bring continuity to the policies he's brought before. And certainly in some areas, 
uh, President Biden has been pursuing similar policies to President Trump, we'll say hawkish on China, for example. But nonetheless, if President Trump was to get reelected, I think you would see significant differences there, for example, on trade. He's talked about doubling down on the use of tariffs or erecting a ring of steel of tariffs around the US economy. That would have a big impact on the global trading system, a big impact on relations with trading partners and big impact on how the US does business with the rest of the world. So that would be absolutely critical. Then there, of course, there are his views on, we'll say, um, not just um, tariffs, but the broader decoupling debate about bringing home production, bringing home supply chains, uh, nearshoring, friendshoring, all of that. I mean, President Trump would be considered to be very much in that camp about uh, uh, um, shoring up US manufacturing even if it is at the expense of U.S. allies. So I think um, if you want to talk about where a shock would come to the global economy, I think you first and foremost have to look at what happens in the U.S. because it is the world's biggest economy still. It is the world's biggest consumer. What happens there will be critical. And then on the geopolitical space, you know, it's hard to look past Taiwan. We'll talk more about Taiwan and India a little later in the hour. But I want to touch on something you alluded to, and, and that's the state of democracy globally. Uh, We have to acknowledge that not not all elections taking place this year will be free and fair. What do you think this year signals about the state of democracy around the world? So the the overall take on this at the moment from experts is um, there's a genuine degree of concern that democracy is under pressure, that it is backsliding, that we are heading into this era of the strongman again. This, This is the kind of the negative case. And the concerns are, even if Uh, a government changes hands or changes sides, the questions become, will the election result be respected by, say, the losing side? Uh, Will the institutions play their role in ensuring a a proper uh, and peaceful transition of power, for example? And when whoever it is takes office, will they respect the institutions such as judiciary and the role of key economic institutions like central banks, for example, who are supposed to be politically independent in, in several economies. There's there, there are these concerns that even if the vote is, you know, held and, and, a, and a transition of power happens, will the broader process of democracy be respected? That's, that's one side of it. The sort of more hopeful take is that, you know, democracy is under pressure. Uh, nationalism is certainly threatening it in a way that it hasn't for some time. Liberalism is under pressure. But that net-net democracy is still in a stronger position than it was, we'll say, at the end of the, of the Cold War. There is a view that um, the work that has been done over the past few years mean, uh, w- will take longer to be sort of rolled back uh, than, than, than one year of elections. Let's take a quick pause here. When we return, we take a look at one of the first elections of the new year that's in Taiwan. It's scheduled for January 13th. Back with more in just a moment. Drake and Kendrick Lamar have been lobbing some serious accusations at each other. You've probably heard the diss tracks and wondered, what's just a low blow and what's actually criminal? I'm Brittany Luce, host of It's Been a Minute from NPR, and I'm getting into what's art and what's worthy of criminal investigation and who those accusations hurt the most on It's Been a Minute from NPR. You care about what's happening in the world. Let State of the World from NPR keep you informed. Each day, we transport you to a different point on the globe and introduce you to the people living world events. We don't just tell you world news, we take you there. And you can make this journey while you're doing the dishes or driving your car. State of the World podcast from NPR. 
vital international stories every day. On the Code Switch podcast, conversations about race don't start and stop with the news cycle. We know that race is always relevant, and we have new topics, new voices, and new stories for you every single week. Listen to the Code Switch podcast from NPR. On the Code Switch podcast, conversations about race and identity don't begin or end with the news cycle. That's because we know race and identity impact every person and influence every story. We're getting into all of it with new voices each week on the Code Switch podcast from NPR. Let's turn now to Taiwan. In just 10 days, voters will make their way to the ballot box to elect a new president and parliament. Many are watching Taiwan's election for its potentially wide-ranging implications for both China and the U.S. Here to guide us is Bethany Allen Abrahamian. She's the China reporter at Axios. She's also the author of the weekly Axios China newsletter and author of the book Beijing Rules, How China Weaponized Its Economy to Confront the World. Bethany, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So first, give us a rundown. Who are the main candidates and their platforms for the Taiwan presidential election? Well, this year, there are three candidates. In the past, there really have just been two for the the two main parties in Taiwan. But this year, there's a third. So first, we have the uh, Democratic Progressive Party. That's the current ruling party. And their candidate is William Lai. There's also the Kuomintang, or the KMT, currently in opposition. And their candidate is Ho Yoi. And and then finally, there is this third party candidate, Ko Wenzhe, and the party that he founded, Taiwan People's Party. And he has really cast himself as an alternative to the kind of the two-party system. Now, the choices for voters here are the DPP, which is... Uh, you know, a Beijing skeptic, you know, very supportive of very close relations with the U.S. And China hates that party and all of its politicians. The KMT is the more Beijing-friendly party that views uh, warmer relations with Beijing as a good way to guarantee Taiwan's security. And Ko Wenzhe of the TPP um, is sort of maybe in between those, those two candidates. So there's Taiwan's relationship with China as a main issue for Taiwanese citizens as they head to the polls. But what are some of the other issues? Right. Well, that that is the main issue. Uh, in Taiwan, the, the presidential elections for most people, really, it's kind of a referendum on cross-strait relations. Uh, but but other issues uh, that Taiwanese, uh, you know, people have talked to me that, you know, they're concerned about are, of course, uh, the economy. Um, for, you know, for some people, it would be social issues like LGBT rights, uh, employment, and, and other um, you know, similar and, and common issues like that. So what should we know about the current president, Tsai Ing-wen, and, and how she's led Taiwan since 2016? Right. So she, um, uh, under her leadership, Taiwan has become especially close to the U.S. Now, of course, the U.S.-Taiwan relationship has always been strong, but Tsai has been a, a forceful advocate for Taiwan on the international stage and has really lifted Taiwan's profile. Uh, the Chinese government, uh, for its part, of course, um, uh, is strongly opposes that. And when she was elected, uh, China cut off all formal communications with Taiwan and has put ever more pressure on Taiwan, including poaching off some of its remaining diplomatic uh, allies. 
Now, it's important to, to remember that Taiwan's democracy is, is still pretty new. They had their transition to democracy in the 90s, and the first election when a party that wasn't the KMT won was the year 2000. So Tsai Ing-wen is only the second DPP president ever. So when we're talking about kind of the history of, of you know, Taiwan's elections, it, it's still pretty recent. So how is China affecting this race, Bethany? Uh, well, Taiwanese officials have said that there is a, a wave of disinformation and other kinds of election meddling coming from China. And uh, one, one thing we've actually seen just in the past 24 hours is that there were four uh, high altitude balloons from China that have floated over Taiwan. And, and that, that's unprecedented to have an actual, you know, this, this brings us back in the U.S. to a year ago when we had the, you know, the, the Chinese spy balloon mm -hmm. controversy. So basically that's what's happening in Taiwan right now. And in the past month, the Chinese government has done a number of these kinds of incursions, getting close to uh, Taiwan's territorial waters as a way to put pressure on Taiwan and basically as a way to communicate to Taiwanese voters that if they vote the wrong way, meaning if they vote for the DPP, they can expect more of this in the future. Bethany, as you talk to your sources, how do they describe what's at stake in this election for Taiwan? Well, it depends on, on who you talk to. The the KMT, the Kuomintang, the more pro uh, the more Beijing-friendly party, describes this election as a choice between war and peace. Now, that's actually also how China describes it. You make the wrong choice, you're going to go to war. Uh, but the DPP casts the election in Taiwan as a choice between democracy and authoritarianism, that, that they can uphold Taiwan's very vibrant democracy against uh, pressure coming from China. And how does Taiwan historically fare when it comes to organizing free and fair elections? Taiwan uh, has a, a very strong record since their transition um, to democracy. And, and overall, their, their society uh, and their democracy is among the strongest in East Asia. Um, so, you know, if we're, if we're talking about the, you know, the backsliding, um, the democratic backsliding that we've been seeing in recent years, Taiwan has not been experiencing that, uh, despite intense pressure from China. In a New Year's address on Sunday, Chinese President Xi Jinping said China's reunification with Taiwan was, quote, inevitable. Now, the result of this election in Taiwan could have a significant influence on the country's future relationship with China. But, Enda, what, what are the global implications of that? Well, let's just say China takes a kind of a hawkish posture towards Taiwan after the election. Uh, that will, of course, heighten global geopolitical tensions. There are a lot of concerns around, A, what it, what it would mean for Taiwan's democracy and freedom, like Bethany was explaining, what it would mean for global trade, especially given the important shipping lanes in that part of the world. How would the U.S. respond? How would Europe respond if China was ramping up its rhetoric and aggression or military patrols? around Taiwan. So I think it would be critical to see not just how the result in Taiwan goes, but then how Beijing responds and how they act on that response. I mean, the commentary that um, China wants to reunify is the word that they use. I mean, that's not new per se, but if they do start to ramp up that pressure and act on it over, come, over coming years in the near term, I think it will become very critical for the global geopolitical debate and, of course, for the world economy.
Bethany, what do we know about who's favored to win the race in Taiwan right now? Uh, well, the the DPP's candidate William Lai is is narrowly favored, uh, but you know it, it's it's true that. Taiwan, many Taiwanese voters want a change. Uh, in the reporting um, that I've done over the past month, um, many people said, look, we've had the DPP for eight years. We want something new. So um, though, though he is uh, narrowly favored, I, I think uh, this election could really go in any direction. And what's so interesting is that the third party candidate, Ko Wenzhe, has at various times uh, over the past six months polled very well. Um, so we'll just have to wait to see uh, on January 13th how, how voters decide. That's Bethany Allen Abrahamian. She's the China reporter at Axios. She's also the author of the weekly Axios China newsletter and author of the book Beijing Rules, How China Weaponized Its Economy to Confront the World. Bethany, thanks for speaking with us. Thanks for having me. And I want to turn to a couple of other elections happening. Uh, the European Union in June, voters will elect a new European Parliament. What's at stake there? Well, so the European Parliament doesn't have the same kind of powers as, as we say a national parliament might, ha- might have, but it does have one very important role, which is the election of the president of the European Commission. Uh, and that role will be up for grabs again, I think, this year. It's currently Ursula von der Leyen. Uh, so it's important in that sense. It will also be very important to see the composition of the European Parliament. For example, uh, will we see more candidates from the far right get elected? And what will that suggest about political mood in in Europe, especially after what happened in the the Dutch election uh, late um, late last year? Of course, you know, the optimistic take is what we saw in Poland, which is an example of where a party can push back against populism. But I think think a lot of people will be looking at the European Parliament elections to see what composition comes out of it as a temperature check as as to where Europe is going right now. Well, in Russia, voters are going to the polls at scheduled for March. Russian President Vladimir Putin isn't likely to face any serious opposition, but how could the ongoing war in Ukraine affect voters? Well, again, this is what people will be looking to. Any signs at all there of dissent, any hints at all of opposition to the war and the invasion of Ukraine. As as you mentioned, I mean, the the ultimate bottom line result is not expected to change in leadership of Russia. And in that case, of course, um, Putin is expected to carry on with his campaign in Ukraine. No change expected there. But there will be a lot of focus to see if there is any sign of dissent, which would be an interesting indicator that maybe not all of Russia is behind the the invasion of Ukraine. You know, the the polling that comes out of Russia suggests sometimes that there is broad-based support for it. But of course, we know there's a very strict control on on the flow of, of information there. So this will be one of those rare chances to get a glimpse as to what the public is actually thinking. I want to make sure we mention the African continent. Since 2020, back-to-back military coups rocked West Africa, um, in Guinea, Burkina Faso, and Mali. In 2021, Chad's army came to power. In July 2023, Niger experienced a coup, followed by another coup to the south in Gabon. Chad and Mali's military juntas say they expect to hold elections sometime this year. Specifically, when we talk about the African continent and West Africa, how much attention should we be paying to what's happening there? And how much attention is the rest of the global community paying, paying to those those areas? Well, it certainly should be getting attention. Uh, and we did see, as you mentioned last year, a fairly um, extraordinary series of, of, of coups taking place with governments being overthrown. That obviously speaks to this whole idea that democracies are under pressure now, are under threat 
that it is the rise of the strongman or the authoritarian regime. And it's raised all kinds of questions around why can't the democratic system respond to the concerns that people have? Why can't they, why can't the system respond and fix whatever the concerns of people are that would, you know, prevent uh, prevent the situation getting to the point where it has in some of those African countries? So I think, yes, it speaks to the pressure that democracy is under. Yes, they do deserve more attention for sure. And as, a, as I mentioned earlier, by the way, the South Africa election will be very interesting next year. That country is racked by economic problems right now. And the ANC is under, under a lot of pressure there too. That's Enda Curran, the Global Economy News reporter at Bloomberg News. Enda, thanks for speaking with us. Thank you very much, Jen. Still to come, the country called the world's largest democracy is expected to head to the polls this spring. We take a look at India's elections and what's at stake. We'll be back with more in a moment. Here at Planet Money, we bring complex economic ideas down to earth. We find weird, fun, interesting stories that explain the way money shapes our lives. Inflation, recessions, the price of gas, we've got you. Listen now to the Planet Money podcast from NPR. With more and more information coming at you all day, every day, it can be hard to know where to focus. The new Consider This newsletter from NPR can be that focus. Every weekday afternoon, we take one of the day's biggest stories and break it down in a simple, skimmable format so you can get a better grasp of one important topic and what it means for you in a couple of minutes. Sign up for free at npr.org slash consider this newsletter. Over 60 countries are heading to the polls for either national or local elections this year. One country's election is sure to make waves. India has the world's largest population at 1.4 billion people. And this year, they're choosing its new leader. Here to discuss is Sadanand Dume. He's a senior fellow with the American Enterprise Institute. That's a conservative think tank. He's also a columnist with The Wall Street Journal. Sadanand, welcome back to the program. Good to be back. So many are watching developments in the run-up to India's election, widely expected to be held in April or May. But let's take a step back. Talk us through the main parties and contenders expected to be competing in this race. Well, you know, the the front-runner in this election is clearly the ruling party, the Bharatiya Janata Party, which is the party led by Prime Minister Narendra Modi. He has been in office since 2014 And it's very unusual in India for a prime minister or for a ruling party to win a third consecutive term. But at this moment, he looks like, very clearly, he looks to be the front runner. The main opposition party is the Congress party, which has dominated Indian politics uh, for most of its history since independence. It's a family-based party. The first Indian prime minister, Jawaharlal Nehru, was from that party. His daughter, Indira Gandhi, was also prime minister for about two decades. Her son, Rajiv Gandhi, was prime minister for one term. And Rajiv Gandhi's son, Rahul Gandhi, is now effectively the leader of the Congress party. But unlike his illustrious forebears, he's been struggling. So that's the sort of second second uh, major contender, albeit lagging significantly behind the BJP and Modi. And then you have this plethora of uh, regional and caste-based parties. I mean, India is so enormous, right? 1.4 billion people, more than almost 950 million voters. Every time Indians vote, it's the largest election in human history. So there are state, you know, there are state parties which are based in states that, if they were independent countries, would be larger than most European countries. Mm-hmm. So there are important state parties in West Bengal, 
in Tamil Nadu and in several other states. So that's that's basically the configuration. So you mentioned that Prime Minister Modi has significant lead at this point, but what would happen if uh, Hindu Nationalist Party, uh, BJP Party, is defeated? What would change? Well, it would, sorry, um, several things would change. I mean, the from if, if it just d- depends on your point of view. If you are looking at this from the vantage point of government supporters. It would obviously be a setback for India because the Modi government has provided uh, uh, stability and an element of policy certainty over the past 10 years, and that would be expected to be continued over the next five years. If you are a government critic, then you would sort of you would see the return of the opposition as a welcome end to rule by a Hindu nationalist party that has marginalized religious minorities and uh, often intimidated critical media and civil society and other actors. Sadanand, how prevalent are concerns over democracy and human rights in this election? You know, that, that's, that's a great question. And, and like many, you know, the answer depends on who you ask. The interesting thing is that, you know, every time I write about or talk about uh, troubles with Indian democracy, I get a lot of pushback from uh, listeners and readers in India. And I think this, the, the sense that most people in India have is that their elections are, their democracy is very robust. And the reason they feel this way is that the elections in India are generally free and fair. Uh, the counting is fast. The elections are not disputed. Power tends to change hand. And so I can see that argument. But the concern that people have, including myself, is that some of the liberal institutions that, are, that, that, that exist to check government power, those have been eroding, particularly over the last 10 years under Mr. Modi. Such as? So as an electoral democracy, India is thriving. As a liberal democracy, it appears to be in trouble. You mentioned the, the size of India's elections. I think you said over 900 million voters in the country. I mean, give us some insight into how these elections are, are organized and how the candidates connect with that many voters across such a, a, a broad swath of space. Well, you know, it's it's really a sort of it's it's a human marvel the way they're organized. They're organized. Uh, they, they don't Indians don't vote on one day. They they're organized in phases over several weeks. But then all the counting is done on one day, and so it's sort of funny. So in terms of like the process, it goes on and on forever because you sort of move large. They they move large volumes of security forces to ensure that the elections are free and fair, that there are no law law and order incidents, and so on. And then finally, on election day, you could be sitting in the you know in a TV studio, um, and by ten in the morning, the last two elections, it's been pretty clear who's winning. Uh, in terms of connecting with voters, you know, it's a parliamentary system. So the main task of most people running for office is to connect with the people in their constituency. Uh, now, these constituencies are also very large by American or European standards, with many, with, often with millions of people in them. Um, but that's the job of your average candidate. But if you're someone like Mr. Modi or the main opposition leader, Rahul Gandhi, uh, then you also have to run a national campaign. And that means not just going out there and campaigning, but uh, making YouTube videos, getting on TikTok, hosting spaces on, on X, uh, using social media, using WhatsApp, uh, getting on television, you know, just, just, just like a campaign anywhere else. I mean, it, wouldn't be, it would not at all be unfamiliar uh, to an American watching the U.S. presidential campaign. So w- what are the global political ramifications of this election? 
So, you know, for the U.S., it's a paradox, right? Because on the one hand, you have the fact that the Modi government has been uh, quite friendly to the to the U.S. and has shared concerns about the rise of China as a hegemonic power in Asia. So in terms of defense cooperation, for instance, uh, things have been going very well between the U.S. and India. Um, but there also remains the fact that liberal democracy, which I mentioned earlier, uh, is not doing so well in India, and that has been a concern for the U.S. So on the interest side, a victory for Modi would be seen as quite positively, I think, certainly among policymakers in Washington. Uh, but on the value side, I think particularly for people, you know, at NGOs, uh, many journalists and so on, uh, that would be seen as a setback. Hmm. So I'm curious about the state of public trust in government and institutions in India right now, as you, you talk about some of the concerns on the institutions that uphold democracy, and, and you shared that many of the, the people you talk to say they believe their democracy is robust. But what's the state of public trust in those institutions? And I'm, of course, thinking about the lack of public trust in institutions here in the U.S. So it's quite different, right? So for example, if you look at the popularity ratings of Biden and Trump, right? They barely at roughly, roughly around, you know, in the early 40s. Uh, Modi has a popularity rating of 77%. Uh, he's an extremely popular re- leader. He's able to go in, and if he kind of tells voters, for example, that he guarantees that you know their subsidized cooking gas or a free toilet or whatever he's promising is going to get to them, uh, it will get to them. So there's an enormous amount of trust in Modi as a leader. Uh, in terms of institutions, there is uh, there there is uh, less trust. Uh, there's less trust in the political class generally compared to how much they trust uh, Modi. And for several years now, the institution that's been trusted the most in India has been the military. And I think that's true of you know several developing countries. And the reason for that is that you know politics in general is seen as tainted and the military is kind of seen as above politics. Let's end on another election you're watching closely, Pakistan's general elections, which are set for February. And these elections were actually postponed. What happened? You know, it's a fascinating story, Rick. I mean, the way I summarize the situation in, in, in Pakistan is that you have, the, uh, you have the unstoppable force of Imran Khan, who is the country's most popular, popular politician, and then you have the immovable, immovable object of the Pakistani army, which is the most powerful institution in the country, and has decided that Imran Khan is not going to be allowed to win. So he's in jail, he faces a web of legal cases, and so there's this cat-and-mouse game going on uh, elections are next month. It seems, uh, looking at it, the situation right now, that they're going to be a complete sham and uh, that Pakistan is going to you know, fall back into a pattern that has long held over the last 75 years, which is that the army doesn't really allow free elections to be held in that country, unfortunately. So who are the main players in Pakistan's race right now? So one player, of course, is Imran Khan, who was the prime minister until 2022, Legendary cricket player, very very popular with the Pakistan with Pakistan's grassroots. Uh, somewhat problematic, I would say, in terms of his governance record, but nonetheless very popular without a doubt. Um, and the main other contender is Nawaz Sharif, who has been prime minister three times before, uh, was in exile in London and had been banned from contesting by the military earlier when he had fallen out of out, you know out of favor with them. He now seems to be back in their graces. And so he it is most likely 
to prevail in this uh, tainted election unless there's some sort of miracle and Imran Khan's body manages to pull this off. Well, today Khan was charged with contempt of the Electoral Commission for, quote, derogatory and contemptuous remarks against the chief election commissioner of Pakistan. Explain a little bit more about the charges he's facing. Well, he faces all kinds of charges. You know, there, there, there are literally scores of cases that have been filed against him. Everything from corruption to, to terrorism uh, to now this contempt of the election, election commission. And I think the general idea is to keep him locked up, prevent him from campaigning. His own nomination papers have been rejected, so he cannot, in fact, stand for parliament, uh, which means that he can't technically become prime minister. So the only way back to power for Imran Khan would be, uh, it seems to be, would be to come to some kind of compromise with the Pakistani army. But the current army chief, General Asim Munir, uh, is a sworn foe of his. So that sort of the prospects of that appear uh, quite dim. Uh, and, you know, as for the other parties, you know, you have the Nawaz Sharif, who is traditionally strong in Punjab, which is the most populous province. And I think what the army is hoping that the Nawaz Sharif political machine is able to generate enough voter turnout for there at least to be some kind of pattern of legitimacy to this election. Uh, Because without that, it would sort of be, you know, if the election is seen widely, both domestically and internationally as a joke, uh, then it doesn't really solve the problem of instability that has been plaguing Pakistan. So what are you watching between now and, and February as this election unfolds? Well, it'll be interesting to see how much, how hard they crack down on PTI. They've already rejected um, Imran Khan's own nomination papers. Will they continue to arrest candidates associated with the party or will there be a sign of some kind of thaw? Uh, it does not look at this moment that there's going, like, there's going to be any kind of thaw. It looks like they're going to just uh, brazen it out. But that, 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 what you're looking for at this point is you know, you're trying to read the tea leaves to see if somewhere behind the scenes there is some softening, and if there is a softening, would that open the door to Imran Khan? Um, that's basically what people are going to be looking at. And, and your sense right now, we've been talking about the state of democracy globally and how there's growing concern about a lot of political and, and human rights. What are you watching more broadly in 2024 about what it means for democracy globally? You know, I think in much of the world, the problem really is, you know, it's, it's, and I think India is emblematic of this and probably the most important country in some ways when it comes to this question. Uh, it's this, it's this gap between our understanding of democracy in the West, because where by democracy we mean liberal democracy. We don't just mean that you get to choose your government. We also mean that they, there are checks and balances to ensure that your government doesn't, doesn't oppress you. And, uh, with an electoral democracy, which is really in many ways, um, thriving because of populists, but the problem is those populists don't really care about the checks and balances. And I think that tension is central to our understanding of democracy, and we're going to see that in many countries, including the United States in 2024. That's Sadan Dumay. He's a senior fellow with the American Enterprise Institute. He's also a columnist with the Wall Street Journal. Sadan, thanks for speaking with us. Thank you. Today's producer was Michelle Harvin. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. We'll talk again tomorrow. This is 1A. You care about what's happening in the world. 
Let State of the World from NPR keep you informed. Each day we transport you to a different point on the globe and introduce you to the people living world events. We don't just tell you world news, we take you there. And you can make this journey while you're doing the dishes or driving your car. State of the World podcast from NPR. Vital international stories every day. The news can be disorienting, and it can be really hard to remember how we got here. That's why we started the Throughline podcast. Every week, we take you on a cinematic trip into the past to better understand the present. Listen now to the Throughline podcast from NPR. From the campaigns to the conventions, from now through Election Day and beyond, the NPR Politics Podcast has you covered. As Joe Biden and Donald Trump square off again, we bring you the latest news from the trail and dive deep into each candidate's goals for a second term. Listen to the NPR Politics Podcast every weekday.